my, uh, you know, new life with my home. And I spent a lot of years here. And uh, man, got to go off and plant a church at OSU. And I'm super excited for what God's doing now in my life. Uh, so if you're not here, if you've never met me, nice to meet you. Uh, let me introduce you to my wife. This is a picture of Tammy. Uh, she's on the far right there. She and I have been married on August 1st, 19 years. So I'll let her know you're encouraging her. So um, that's Abby and my youngest daughter, Carly. And uh, so I'm surrounded by girls all the time. Uh, that's real fun. A lot of estrogen, a lot of crying in the house all the time. Uh, but uh, I enjoy. The one thing I would tell you about Tammy and I is that we love lost people. If you live in my neighborhood and you are lost, we are more likely to hang out with you than we would hang out with you if you're a church person. Um, it's just the way we're wired. I think for me personally, uh, when I gave my life to Christ as like a 10-year-old boy, I remember the first thing I did was I went to a neighbor boy, a friend of mine, and I tried to tell him he needed Jesus. So I think it's just the way God's wired me. And I've grown up with a lot of lost people. Uh, I've been you know, raised by them and around them, lots of friends. And I think my heart just kind of burns for them because I, you know, I know how they think. And I, you know, I just want to see them find the Lord. See, you know, when I say lost person, um, some of you may wonder exactly, you know, what I mean by that. Uh, the term comes from Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 15, he told a story, three stories, in fact, uh, the lost coin and the lost uh, sheep and the lost son. All three of the stories really say the same thing. The stories are about God's heart for those who have wandered away from him. And then we know God loved lost people so much that he would give his only son to die for them to bring them back to him. God has a huge heart for the lost. I, uh, because of the way God's wired me, it's been a big driving force in my life. I actually was part of the team that planted at New Life OSU, and the driving force behind that was to find lost students and bring them into a relationship with Christ. They weren't hard to find. There's 55,000 students at OSU. As best we could tell, uh, maybe 2,500 were actually involved in anything evangelical. Uh, that's a lot of people. So back in 2003, we planted a church, and we got to see students come to faith and grow up and become mentors to other students, become leaders. Uh, we've actually seen um, you know, hundreds of students go out across the world to share the gospel on mission trips. Former New Lifers, we have some that are serving um, in India, and in Africa, and in the Middle East as missionaries right now. It's, a, it's just a beautiful thing to watch God do what he does through students. In fact, uh, many of the students that, that we have grow up and they serve in churches just like this one. We sent a team over to Pittsburgh to help plant a church to reach students over there at that university. And um, for 13 years, I served as a pastor there. But I started to get a sense about four or five years ago that God was doing something different in me, building up a well of things to share with a community and this heart to reach a community. And so I started praying about, God, what would you have me do? And I saw a lot of counsel and spent a lot of prayers, and I just got the sense that God was preparing me for a church plant to reach a community with lost people with the gospel. So two years ago, I mentored a student, uh, this, well, a former student. He actually was a freshman in 2003 when we started and gave his life to Christ and grew up and became a leader, went off to the Middle East and taught English, the gospel, and then... He came back and served with, you know, with my staff, and I've been mentoring him. And two years ago, I started to uh, train him to become the lead pastor. 
And this past June, Andy Kalin became the lead pastor at New Life OSU. So it's exciting, but for me, extremely difficult to kind of take my hands off what God is doing there, uh, but knowing full well that what God is preparing me for. And so as of June 1st, I work for the North American Mission Board, which is a board of um, uh, missionaries that kind of make up the SBC congregation, and I've been placed at a local church in Columbus uh, under a church planter as an apprentice, a gentleman who's planted three churches, and my job is to kind of uh, explore what it's going to look like to plant a church in central Ohio again. And it probably happened in 2018. So I'm super excited because I get to help penetrate a community with a lot, you know, of lost people with the gospel of Jesus. So, uh, man, it's been a big summer. So, yeah. I, I want to say something about the series. You know, the series, What's Love Got to Do With It? You know, last week when Jay talked about loving the city, he was saying that as we engage with God and as the love of God, you know, fills us, we become part of his activity in the city. You know, and when we share that love in us with others, you know what? It really comes down to sharing with lost people one by one. You know, lost people wouldn't say they're lost. That's the thing. You're going to run into people, and very few of them are going to consider themselves atheists. There will be a few, but most will not be. Most people here in central Ohio are going to say they, are, you know, they believe in God. They might even attend a church now and again. And when you run into them and you start to talk to them, they might say things like this, uh, well, I'm a good person. Uh, I, you know, I go to church now and then. I give some money. You know, they say these things because in a way they are trying to um, you know, come to God on their own terms. And in their terms usually are, I'm trying to be a good person, hoping that that will make them right with God. And when you're talking to them, the reason why they're lost is because they're not coming to God on God's terms. You see, God wants us to interact with him through his son, Jesus Christ. That God is glorious and we are not. And we have no hope of connecting to that glory in and of ourselves or anything that we do. And so the people that you run into, oftentimes they sense that, you know, when you bring up Jesus with them, they sense that. And you start to see some defensiveness sometimes or even, you know, shutting down. Because they can feel that there's something missing, something is wrong. But God loves them. And if God loves lost people, then what does that mean for us? You know, we live in a time and place where we have the opportunity to make a difference in our culture still. We can share the gospel. We can love the lost. So there's, there's a passage of scripture that I think really speaks to that. Um, Paul, the apostle, wrote it, and it's the book of Colossians. Paul might be the greatest missionary of all time. Planted church after church after church. Wrote much in the New Testament. If anyone knows something about loving the lost, it's Paul. So I, my prayer is that as I share a little bit of this passage and share some thoughts that God has put in my heart, my prayer is that God will speak to all of us about what it would look like to love the lost in our own hearts. So before you open up the clock, let's pray together, okay? And you pray that God will speak to you. God, I, I ask, um, first and foremost, that you would speak to us today. Lord, as I'm communicating, I'm trusting in your Holy Spirit to open up hearts in this room that you would peel back the calluses on our hearts to see and to, to love the lost like you do. I pray for people to, to just hear from you even in this next few minutes, Lord. I ask that in your son's name. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm going to share a couple of thoughts um, from Colossians as I go. And the first one is this, is that the importance of the gospel supersedes my circumstances. The importance of the gospel supersedes my circumstances. Paul actually wrote this letter while he was in prison. 
And starting in verse 2 in chapter 4 of Colossians, it says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, Paul is assuming that people reading this letter are in an active relationship with God. That when it says, devote yourselves to prayer, that's talking about actually speaking to God, talking to him on a regular basis, engaging in God's activity, being watchful, that you're watching for God to not only work in your life, but through your life. And then to be uh, thankful is as we watch God work, we engage with his activity. We're prayerful and thankful for everything he's doing. That as we see him work, we're full of praise for what he's doing in our life. And then Paul says this, and pray for us too. Now, what's interesting is that Paul is the apostle writing the letter to correct and encourage the people uh, in that church. But he's saying, will you please pray for me? Now, what is so important to Paul that he's asking everyone else that he's trying to teach and encourage, but please pray for me? What is so important to Paul? Here's what he says. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, he's saying that I'm praying that an open door would, you know, would happen for the message. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, he's able to just to get it out there, but he's praying that the open door would be the hearts of the listeners that are hearing the message. What is this message? He's saying it's the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? If you want to understand Paul, just simply go back to chapter 1 in Colossians. You see, what Paul communicated to the people of Col- you know, in this church was that Jesus was God in the flesh. He is the firstborn of creation, that he is the invisible God. He is the exact representation. That is what he's saying about Jesus. And he came because people cannot earn back their way to God with their good works. He had to send his son down to die on a cross. And here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 26 of Colossians. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. That's us. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The message that he's sharing is the gospel. And it once was not clear to the people of Israel and anyone else. It has now been made clear. You see, people beforehand, they would have to, you know, do all the rituals. And they would have to hope that their conduct and behavior and their prayers would equal somehow, some way that God would, you know, let them into heaven or would honor their life. They had to hope. But it was no hope at all. The only way we could be made right with God is if God connects to us through his son and puts his spirit in us, the hope of glory. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. The good news is that we can be made right with God through Jesus. And Paul is saying, this message is so important, it supersedes his circumstances. He wasn't praying, you know, that he could be let out of prison. He was praying for the message to come out. But here's the the thing about the mystery. The mystery had clues. God had set up a foreshadowing long ago. He chose the people. He chose Abraham and all of Abraham's offspring the Jewish nation, that he was going to show the world who he is through this nation. As you know, the nation ended up down in Egypt. They were in slavery for 400 years, and they cried out to God, please send us a deliverer. And what did God do? He sent them Moses. And remember the plagues? There were all the plagues. Remember the last plague? The last plague was that the firstborn male in the entire area of Egypt was going to die. But God sent them and said, listen, I want you to take a lamb, your perfect lamb, and sacrifice that lamb and put the blood over the doorpost, and everyone in that house is going to be spared. 
And so what happened is when the angel of death came down, he would see that blood covering the door, and he would pass over that door to the next one. And that's how God spared the firstborn males in Egypt. And then he commanded the Israelites, I want you to do this Passover every year. For 1,500 years, they did this as they celebrated that God was the one who would send a deliverer. God is the one who would send a Savior to save them. And so they would know that when John the Baptist said, look, 1,500 years later, there he is. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They would all go, oh, I get it now. You see, God set it up the foreshadowing long ago so they would get it. And if I had the time, I could go through story after story after story in the Old Testament of how God set it up so that there would come a day that they would recognize Jesus. That's the foreshadowing. The importance of this message is, and I've got to be honest with you, you know, if I ever go to prison, if I'm somewhere and they unjustly put me in prison, I'm going to write you all a letter. <laughs> and the letter is going to be something like this. You know any people? Can y'all bribe somebody? Can you get me out of here? Pray for Ed Travers. Get him out of prison. That's what I'd be praying. Not Paul. Paul's crazy. He's like, I just want the message to get out. That's, you know, in, in Philippians chapter 1, he wrote this letter. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. <laughs> As a result, it has been become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Well, how do you think that happened? Paul doesn't shut up. He's constantly talking about the gospel. That's Paul. Why? Because the gospel message is so important, it supersedes his circumstances. Let me tell you what it looks like for me. I, uh, I've been praying for several years about you know, this church plan. I knew God had been preparing me. But uh, in, in, back in 1999, I started a company. My, I, I knew God was going to call me into ministry. I just didn't know exactly how. So I started a company, and the idea was that I could donate my time wherever God, you know, had me want to serve, you know? And so I started this company. And then, you know, three years later, we ended up starting the church at OSU. So I kind of had these two things going on, and I've always been bivocational the whole time I've been in ministry. And at first, you know, this would kind of, you know, the business kind of made sure I had insurance and had income. Then as the church kind of picked up, you know, kind of evened out. But what happened was, you know, we kind of always operate on a shoestring budget. We acquired some debt. You know, I got some company debt, I got some personal debt. You know, through insurance and taxes and just bad decisions, we acquired some debt. So now I'm kind of in this catch-22 situation where I kind of need the company to pay for the debt, you know, but I want to be in full-time ministry. So I've been praying. I'm like, God, here's the deal. You know, I work for you. This company is yours. I'm asking that someone would buy it to kind of pay off the debt and put me into full-time ministry. And so I've been praying. Out of nowhere, a couple months ago, a competitor calls me. He's interested in buying my company. Now, my company's not worth a lot, but it's enough to pay off my debt, you know? So I'm like, I'm like, you know, we're negotiating, and I'm, you know, I'm sending them some financials, and we're talking, and we're talking about business model, all this stuff, and I'm thinking, so I call a couple buddies of mine, I'm like, you guys are be praying for me. The guy wants to set a meeting in Dayton, so I'm on my way to Dayton, and I'm traveling, and on the way to Dayton, I'm like, God, don't let me blow this, you know? This is kind of a big one. Um, I'm praying that he will like me, he'll like the business model, and he'll give me an offer, and a good offer. You know, God, if you know what I'm saying, it could be nice if it was a good offer. <laughs> I'm on the way to the meeting, and I said, but God, here's the deal. I belong to you. It's your company. I represent you today. Have, do whatever you will. I go to the meeting. The first thing he wants to know is, well, tell me about this ministry thing. I said, well, you know, I'm kind of in ministry, you know, both, you know, doing both these things. He goes, well, what, now what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a full-time pastor. He goes, well, how'd you become a pastor? I said, bingo. <laughs> Boom. I said, let me tell you about my life. I said how Jesus changed my life. 
I talked about how, what he's done in my life, how he's changed me from the inside out, and how he has absolutely made me you know, excited about everything Jesus has. I just want everyone. I've dedicated my life so that people would know Jesus. I said, can I ask you something? He said, yeah. I said, what is your faith background? He said, well, I kind of grew up in this particular church. I'm like, that's the same as my dad. In fact, I was kind of raised that way. I said, you know, my dad became a believer when he was 45. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. He, he grew up in this church, and in this church, he kind of learned, you know, to do all the right things, and he had to kind of memorize these things and do these things and show up at his church every week, and then he had to hope that someday he just kind of thought almost intuitively that when he gets to heaven, there'd be like a scale, and inside the scale, there'd be like your good and your bad, and if your good outweighs your bad, then somehow, you know, God would let you into heaven. I said, so my dad just kind of lived that life, and he never had any peace because he never knew if he was doing enough good. And as I was speaking, I could see the guy's eyes getting big. I said, but you know, my dad was introduced to Jesus through a Bible study. And the guy who was leading the Bible study started showing him Jesus' life and what Jesus did on the cross and how he died for all of our sin and how he was raised again. And my dad, you know, he came to this conclusion that if he could be good enough, if he could get the scales in his favor somehow, why would Jesus have to die? It makes no sense. Why would Jesus die if we could earn it back? And I said, well, my dad realizes that this is really all about Jesus. Everything is about what he has done. And so my dad decided to put all of his trust and faith in Jesus. I said, and it changed my dad's life. On the way back home, I called one of my buddies who was praying. I said, man, it went pretty well. He's like, what happened? Did he give you an offer? I said, yeah, he gave me an offer. I said, we're negotiating right now. I said, but it's pretty good. I said, I even got to share the gospel with him. My friend goes, you did? I said, I said, yeah. He goes, I don't know if I've ever done that. <laughs> now look, did it occur to me that the guy might be kind of put off by what I was saying? Yeah, it occurred to me. I got that. Did it occur to me that he might think, I don't want to work with anybody who's like a Jesus freak? Yes, it occurred to me that I was coming across like a Jesus freak. I get that. But I'm standing eyeball to eyeball with someone who needs to hear this message of the gospel, and that supersedes my deal. I don't need a deal as much as this person needs to hear the gospel. For me, the gospel supersedes my circumstances. Does it for you? I'm telling you, it does. You just don't know it yet. For some of you guys, you're struggling through, and I'm telling you, this message has got to become more important than our daily circumstances or struggles or fears or whatever. And I've got to say one more thing here. The next thing is that the gospel message is powerful. It's extremely powerful. Let me tell you something about the guy, this guy I'm you know, trying to negotiate this sale with. Uh, a couple weeks later, we ended up talking, and he said, you know, I said, and he, we were talking about, well, maybe I could sell for you, you know, for a little while until the church plant gets off the ground. And he said, well, if you, the way you talk about Jesus, I can't imagine you're going to have any trouble getting that off the ground. I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's powerful what you say. I'm like, right, yeah, because the gospel's powerful. I didn't say that to him, but that's what I meant. So <laughs> let me tell you what Paul says. In uh, the next verse, chapter 5 in Colossians 4, it says this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Now, the be wise is kind of like saying, hey, be smart. Use your head. Look, I know some of you might want to leave today and share the gospel with everyone, but listen, be smart. Not everyone's going to hear it exactly the way you want to say it. So, you, you know, just be smart. And it says to let your life basically be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Let your life reflect the gospel that you believe so dearly in. Because they may, people may not agree with you about what you say about Jesus, but they will watch your life. And if your life reflects something different, especially in conflict, especially you know, in relationships, if they see your life reflect something more, they will respect you even if they don't agree with you. 
And if they respect your life, oftentimes they will start to ask you why. And that, that next statement says, make the most of every opportunity. You know, the King James says it like this, to redeem the time. That means it costs something. We should be on the lookout, even though it costs us our time. We should be looking for opportunities to share this message because it's powerful. You know, I was thinking, if every Christian started to share the gospel, we would flood the world with the gospel. It would happen. So you have to ask yourself the question, and you know, why does that not happen? So I was thinking about that. You know, uh, I think for me, one of the reasons is that, to be honest with you, you know, I've got a wife and two kids. I work two jobs. You know, I've got ministry responsibilities. And to be honest with you, sometimes I'm just lazy. You know, I'm, I get tired. You know, I just want to watch a ball game. I, you know, sometimes I'm just so caught up in me and myself. I don't really think about other people. I don't pray for other opportunities. I think that's one of the top reasons we don't share. Uh, another reason, I think, is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what people might say. We're afraid of their reaction. We might lose a friend. We might have a family member that doesn't want to talk to us anymore. It might happen. A lot of the fear is because we're afraid that people might ask us a question and we won't know how to answer it. Can I just say, I learned something several years ago that I started to really trust in. He said, you should, you should always read your Bible. Romans 1.16. It's incredible. Romans 1.16 says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel has power in it. Look, you don't have to try to be witty or clever or smart. Just a clear presentation of the gospel. There's power in that. Because what happens is when you share the gospel and you have a heart that's open, the Holy Spirit somehow intersects that person and changes the person. You don't have to be that bright. You don't have to be that clever. You don't even have to say it really well. Just clear presentation. And you can trust in what God is doing rather than your ability. So yes, I understand you might be afraid, but trust in God when you present the gospel. You never know when there might be an opportunity. Just a quick presentation. Let me, let me tell you about a, a very powerful moment in my life that I had no idea was powerful. I uh, went to the office store this couple years ago, up at Office Max, up on Players Parkway. And I go in the store, I'm doing, you know, buying my stuff. You know, I go to the, you know, the cashier, and I check it out. I'm getting them in the bags, and I'm just heading back to my car, minding my own business. As I'm getting in my car, I hear Ed from behind me. I'm like, hey, dude, I went to high school with. Hadn't seen him in like 20 years. I'm like, what's going on? And like, you know, we're catching up, and you know, this, that, and you know, and he goes, what are you doing now? I said, would you believe I'm a pastor? He goes, really? You? I'm like, I know, you know. So <laughs> we're, we're talking, and he goes, well, how'd you become a pastor? I, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I just started telling him about Jesus, how Jesus changed my life. I'm going on and on. And I said to him, I said, you know, what about you? He goes, well, I, I've recently had kind of some spiritual stuff happen in my life. I said, really, what's going on? He goes, well, I don't know if you knew, but I really struggled with alcohol for years, and it affected his family. I, we were talking about that. He goes, but about four years ago, he started working the steps, and one of those steps, he goes, every day I get down on my knees, and I pray because I need a higher power that can give me the power to, you know, beat this addiction. Now, as I was listening to him, here's what I was thinking in my head. He believes in God. He believes in God. He is praying to God, but I don't know that he knows Jesus. He's hoping that this act of prayer every, you know, every day will help him live life. 
And he's hoping that every day that that'll just make it happen. But I don't know that he knew Jesus. So I said to him, I said, hey, buddy, I said, do you know, do you remember my brother? He's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, do you know my brother was an alcoholic for like 10 years? Destroyed his life, almost ruined his whole family. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, you know what happened to him? He knew the same information that I did about Jesus. But he never responded to Jesus. But one day at his rock bottom, at his worst, he realized he needed Jesus. And he said he felt literally the hand of Jesus on his shoulder saying, take my hand. And my brother decided to take the hand of Jesus and surrender his life to Jesus. And ever since then, somehow, and this is the way he describes it, he had the power inside him to get past the carryout. As I was speaking, I know I don't understand as much as my friend understood that power. I said, and my brother has been clean for 18 years ever since. I said, he has been serving in his church. He leads recovery ministry. He's a different person. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. You know, we kind of exchanged information, and, and I left and hadn't heard from him in like two years. Randomly, I got a Facebook message from him that said, hey. I said, hey, yourself. That's kind of random. <laughs> and he said this. I want to tell you that my wife and I are getting baptized Sunday. So I said, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> the Lord must be working in your life and in your family. What a great picture for your daughter to see. Where are you guys going to church? I think you said you live in Hilliard. And he said this. We go to LifePoint on Dublin Road. I've been hearing a lot about planting seeds lately, and I can trace my walk to us running into each other at Office Max a couple years ago. Right? Listen, I've shared the gospel with lots of people. I don't get those messages all the time. But I trust that as I plant seeds of the gospel, that God will do the rest. I just want to challenge you. Lose the fear. Figure out a good way to say it. Share the gospel clearly and trust God. Now, I think... Paul, being much wiser than I am, gave us some advice to follow. Something I think we need to hear. Um, let me say it like this. how I kind of coined it. Is it go heavy on the grace and light on the salt. Okay? Here's what Paul says. Verse 6 in chapter 4. He says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now the key is know how to answer everyone. Um, just from me to you, I, I think some, uh, a wise thing is to ask people questions about their faith. You know, with all this stuff happening in our, in our world around us, it's real easy to ask people because they really do want to talk about it. If you say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about what's happening? Where do you get answers for all this stuff? If you ask a few questions like that, people will share. And listening to them, you might have an opportunity to share the gospel. But what he's saying here is always be full of grace. I think what we need to recognize is that these people need grace. People who are wandering away or far from God, they need grace. And we simply have to remember the grace that was given to us. Does Jesus love lost people? Yeah. Does he love you? Were you once lost? Yes. So you just have to simply share that message of grace with people and be ready to overload them with grace. But you have to tell the truth of the gospel too. Jesus was the perfect master at this. He was, you know, if Jesus was walking around here, he'd be more likely to be hanging out with like sinners, prostitutes, people who are destitute from God than he would be in church. I mean, Jesus was that kind of guy. He loved lost people. And if that's the same with us, then we need to have some lost people in our lives. I mean, is your life so Jesified that you don't have any lost people in it? Then it's not Jesified. Just saying. Be full of grace, but Jesus also addressed issues by sharing the truth. But remember, remember that you season it. Don't overload it. If you put a little bit of salt in something, it tastes better. If you overload it, it's impalatable. Too much salt, and it will drive people away. 
I think here's how we do this. We, you know, we've been changed. You know, if you follow Christ, you, you become changed and your behavior starts to change. So what happens is we look at other people's behavior and we just critique the behavior. Sometimes we do it not directly one-on-one with the person, but if they're near us, we start railing about other people's behavior. And it's real easy to do because people are sometimes, you know, they do really dumb things. So we hear what they do and then we just start slamming them or we go on Facebook and post it or social media and we post how people behave and we just slam them. And I'm telling you, it never works. You're not going to slam people with salt and they're finally going to go, wow, you're right, I need Jesus. It just doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen. You know, I, you know, God speaks to me through circumstances and stories all the time, little things that happen, and he, he kind of brings them to my mind. This week, uh, I was preparing this message, and this story came to my head, so I just want to share it with you, because I think it really helped me kind of sink this in about the salt and the grace thing. Let me, let me explain. Uh, I've been married, it'll be 19 years in August. First year of marriage, when I was single, I had what was called a super single waterbed. Not a, don't, don't judge me. Some of you guys have waterbeds too, because they were cool back then, you know. Anyway, I had the little one, you know, because, you know, I'm a single guy. So when we got married, all we had was my super single waterbed, and first year of marriage, a couple months in, Tammy says to me, Ed, I love you so much. <laughs> Would you please buy us like a queen-size bed? She goes, I'll be the happiest wife, and I will never ask you for anything else. Please, please, please. <laughs> well, I, we bought a, you know, we bought a bed, you know, so that's how that works. But about two months later, my brother-in-law calls and says, hey, we found this puppy, and the puppy's abandoned, and it's going to die unless someone takes it. Will you guys take the puppy? And my wife says, Ed, I love you. <laughs> I promise. I will never ask you for anything. Anyway, we got a puppy, you know. <laughs> so we had this little black fur ball, uh, you know, about six or seven weeks old at the time, and uh, it's half lab, half chow. So it's lab's, you know, incredibly playful, and chows can be very aggressive. My dog is aggressively playful, okay? <laughs> so this little furball grows up to be about 80 pounds, kind of an imposing-looking dog, a jet black. Uh, we named him Presley, you know, after Elvis, so we thought, yeah, he looks like Elvis. So he's a little Elvis dog, he's Presley. Anyway, he had a little white thing on his chest. He's a great-looking dog. Anyway, so I love this dog, and, uh, you know, we would play, and I would roughhouse him, you know? We would kind of wrestle and fight, and I'd try to get him to bite me, and he would stick his teeth on my hands, but he would never, like, press down, but he would be rougher with me, but he would never do that to Tammy. So I, as I was noticing it, I'm like, Tammy, come here. So I took Tammy's hand, and I put her hand kind of locked in mine, and I'm wrestling the dog, and he would bite my fingers but not hers. How does that happen? Like, this dog was so gentle, this big, tough dog, and he was so gentle, <clears throat> and, I, you know, I just loved him to death. Anyway, he grew up 12 years later, and he was getting older, a little grayer, you know, and he was a lot slower, and uh, he had developed arthritis. So we had him on a medicine for his arthritis because, you know, he was struggling. So the medicine was working great. Uh, but the manufacturer of this particular medicine, for some reason, you know, stopped making it for a period, or we couldn't get it, so we had to put him on a new medicine. Well, it wasn't working. So for like two months, he was just kind of limping around, and he would groan, and when he would try to sleep, he would, you could see him tossing and turning. It was awful to watch. Anyway, we finally you know, got the new medicine, you know, the old medicine again, to put it in his system. Two days later, he was almost back to his normal self. So we had went up to visit Tammy's family up in Bucyrus, and so we were gone all day with the kids. When we come home, of course, you know, we've been gone all day. He's excited to see us. So he jumps up to see us, and he comes down on his right paw, and then he just let out a yelp that would curl your hair. And I ran him immediately because he was holding his paw like this, and I went to grab his paw because I thought he must have stepped on something. You know, I went to grab his paw, and as soon as I went to grab it, he bit down on my thumb. 
And when I say he bit down, he was biting, clamping on my thumb, and I thought he was going to crush my thumb. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, you know, and I just whispered to him, Presley, Presley, Presley. By the third time, he looked at me and let go, and he looked at me like, oh, no, what have I done? Here's what I didn't know. My dog had bone cancer. When he came down on his arm, he actually broke his arm in two. You know, I was thinking about this story because, you know, that's what we have to realize, that people who are wandering from God, sin does the same thing in their life. It's like a cancer that rots them from the inside out. And when you witness the behavior, sometimes destructive behaviors, sometimes mean behaviors, or sometimes behaviors that you're looking at and going, why are you doing that? You have to realize that's what sin does in us. And at that moment, we don't need to hammer them for their bad behavior. We don't need to reprimand them for biting at us. We simply sometimes need to whisper their name. You know what? Isn't that what Jesus did with you? Wasn't there that moment for you when you sensed Jesus whispering your name and you woke up? That's what we need to be. We need to clearly communicate the gospel with grace and allow God to do his work and not try to hammer on the salt. Look, I just want to encourage you with that because I want you to embrace the message of the gospel as important in your life and trust in the power of it, and I want you to share it. But also recognize that, you know, there are people, you know, that hurt, and you need to kind of hear about the people that are hurting, too, and recognize that, you know? This cancer destroys them. Now, oftentimes, you're not going to see it as a cancer. You're going to see it in people where they get kind of defensive, you know? Let me tell you one last story, okay? Um, so a couple months ago, I was doing premarital counseling with a, a couple that was in our church, and, uh, you know, we were meeting with them on a regular basis, and, and we would talk about marriage and yada, yada, yada. One night, they were coming for one of their sessions, and so Tammy and I decided, well, let's buy them some dinner. So we ordered dinner from a local restaurant up on Players Parkway. Um, and so, you know, I called in their orders, and at the last second, the lady said, hey, what can I have a name for the order? I said, yeah, my name's Ed. She goes, oh, that's my dad's name. I went, oh, okay, <laughs> great, you know, I'm, I didn't think anything of it. So about 15 minutes later, I drive over to the place, and in the restaurant, this particular restaurant, they have, you know, the main restaurant, and then they have a separate room for carryout orders, so you go in. So I come in, and it's just this girl standing there. And so when I come in, she's like, hey, what's your name? I said, my name is Ed. She goes, your order's not ready. I said, well, can I go ahead and pay for it now? Because to be honest with you, here's what I was thinking. Pay for it now. When it gets here, I get out of here faster. That's what I was thinking. So I walk up to the counter, and I see her name tag is Angela. I said, hi, Angela. I said, are you Ed's daughter? She laughs. She goes, yeah, I'm, I'm Ed's daughter. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Are you, is your family from here? And she said, actually, my dad is you know, in another state, but I'm here. I said, why are you here? She goes, well, I'm a student at Ohio State. I'm a senior getting ready to graduate. I said, really? I said, what's your, what's your major? She goes, psychology. I said, oh, are you going to grad school? She said, no. I'm like, do you want to be a therapist or something? Or, you know, she goes, no. I said, why'd you go into psychology? She goes, well, I kind of like the coursework, and I really don't want to be a therapist, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, okay. Uh, well, what, what drew you to the coursework? She says, well, I, I love people. I like being around people. I like helping people, and I just want to help people wherever I'm at. I want to be around people and help them. I said, have you thought about social work? She goes, I thought about it, but here's the problem. You know, people who have problems, I tend to get in their lives, and then I kind of take on their problems myself. It's completely unhealthy. I said, well, pretty, pretty smart, you know? Shouldn't do that, you know? I said, have you thought about nursing? She goes, yeah, I thought about it. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I said, how come? She goes, I hate blood. <laughs> I said, all right. I said, can I give you some advice? She said, yeah. I said, when you interview for a company, here's what you do. 
You tell them that you really want to be around people and help people, and you want to be in an organization where there's lots of people. So you took psychology to learn like conflict management and you know skills to help people, so that you could be an asset to any company that hires you. She goes, "That's pretty good." I said, "Free of charge," you know. <laughs> I said, you know, I've worked at Ohio State for many years now, and, and student after student, I hear the same story. They have to declare a major so early, what they're going to do the rest of their life. I said, it's a real struggle for them. She goes, yeah, it's been like that for me. I said, what are you going to do? She goes, I don't, I don't know. I said, you know, can I ask you something? I said, how's your spiritual life been while in college? And she just put her head down. If, if shame was a cloak, I watched it enter the room and land on her. And she said, you know, I went to church a lot when I was in high school, but, you know, in college, I kind of, you know, I really haven't done much, and I, you know, I should do a lot more. And just then, the girl comes in with the food. I'm like, no! Why are you coming in here? You know, but, and I knew it was going to get awkward at that moment. So she comes in, she goes, I need to go over your order with you, and so we go over here, we're going through the order, I'm, I'm just thinking the whole time, what am I going to say, what am I going to say? And, you know, I'm hoping she'd kind of leave. She goes over and she stands right next to Angela. I'm like, oh, man. So now I knew I couldn't really address what was going on in her. I didn't want to embarrass her or anything, but I knew I wanted to say something. So I walked over, you know, I've got my food. I walk over to Angela. I said, Angela, can I tell you why I asked you about your spiritual life? She said, yes. I said, Angela, I believe God loves everyone, and he made everyone for a purpose. And because everyone's valuable to God, he makes them in such a way that he has a purpose for their life. And I said, maybe the reason you were made the way you are, the, what, this empathy you have and this heart you have for other people, maybe God is trying to show you something, and as you connect to him, that you will understand exactly why, and he will use you to impact this world. I said, I just want to encourage you, Angela, to go towards God. And as you go towards God with your life, he will start to show you that purpose. She goes, okay. So I grab the food, and I go back to the door. I'm getting ready to turn. And I turn around the last thing. I said, Angela, I said, I hope the next time I come in here, I hope that you're gone and you found your dream job. And she said, please do not forget me. You know, I do not forget Angela. I pray for Angela. In my mind, somehow, maybe someplace I'm at, she'll show up. I don't know. But I know that Angela represents people that are far from God, and they, they know something's wrong. They believe in God, but they know something's missing. They don't know the answer. And I'm here to tell you that if you feel like Angela, it's Jesus is the answer. What he did on the cross made it so that you could be right with God. And he wants you to know exactly what your purpose is. To know him. To honor him. And if you're here today and you can identify with Angela, can I just say, can I invite you to give your life to Jesus? Go towards him by telling him that you're sorry and give your life to him. Let him start to work in your life. I, I can't help but think that as I'm communicating that there are people like me in this room who've been Christians for a long time and you know, maybe you've just been kind of not thinking about this stuff, kind of putting it off the radar. I just want to challenge you this morning. Maybe as I've been talking, you've been thinking specifically about a person in your life that you know needs to hear the gospel. Or maybe you can identify with, with Angela that you feel like there's been a disconnect between you and God. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk to God right now, to connect to him. So what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask everyone to stand in the room if you can and just kind of stand up and just maybe close your eyes and bow your head and just kind of make a moment between you and God. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And, you know, if you want to go and meet with a prayer partner around the room, just go talk to them. If you want to ask them to pray for your friend, 
or pray for you, this would be a great time to do that. You know, the band's going to come up here in a minute, and we're going to worship God together. But just before that happens, I just want to lead you in a prayer. Just talk to God. So everyone close their eyes and bow their heads. And if that was you and you feel like you've been disengaged, maybe tell God right now, God, I am sorry. Between you and God, no one watching you, you talk to God. God, I am sorry. I am available. Give me opportunities even this week to make a difference for your name. And just talk to him. Maybe there's someone in your life specifically that you just are you're hurting for. Lift up their name right now to God, that God would do something, that God would open up their heart. As I was speaking about Angela, if that's you and you have sensed in your heart that you've been distant from God, now's the time to tell him, God, I am sorry. Just pray that. God, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Tell him that you believe in his son and what he did on the cross and he rose from the dead. And you want to ask him to come into your life, to have this active relationship. Ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. When you make a decision like that, you don't do it alone. And I just ask with everyone's eyes closed and, you know, closed and heads down, if that was you, just kind of raise your hand up. I'm going to pray for you. You made that decision. Thank you. If that was you, just, I want to pray for you. Let me be the first person to know. God, I'm asking that you would work in our lives, that you would take people like me and make us even more awake for opportunities to share the gospel. We're praying for people in our lives that need to hear it. And God, for the people in this moment who are taking first steps, I pray that you would just work in their life as you put your spirit in them, change them from the inside out. God, we're so grateful for all that you do. In your precious son's name, amen. Thank you.